Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Welcome, everyone. Uh, I hope everyone is faring well these days in this period we're in. We don't know how long it will last, but it's, uh, it's uh, something we're all learning to adapt to right now. Um, wish we could all be together to discuss this in person, but uh, this is the, the best we can do with Zoom, and it's actually working quite well, as Mark pointed out. Tonight, we're, our subject is artificial intelligence and data. So I'll try to discuss this in both terms, both artificial intelligence itself, uh, some aspects of what it is. Uh, there are many positive benefits. It's part of our lives already. There's also a lot of uh, anxiousness and apprehension about what the rapid development, very rapid development of AI that I'll be describing, what it means for our society and for humanity. Um, we'll discuss that and then I'll sp turn more specifically to the question of data, to human privacy, to how this is being handled around the world and um, what the landscape is both internationally, nationally and also right here in Minnesota. So um, artificial intelligence, a couple of definitions um, at, the, at the outset here. Yes. Um, so artificial intelligence is software that can reason and that can learn. And increasingly that, that function of learning is becoming more and more important um, as we'll see here. Uh, AI, like much of computing is based on algorithms. There's one on your screen there. Um, an algorithm is a set of defined instructions that are orderly and finite for solving a task. Um, now, artificial intelligence today, as it's become more complex, is a network of algorithms um, of, of increasing complexity. And uh, it's occurring within what is referred to as the Internet of Things, the IoT. You can see all the different things that we do from cell phones to computing to other uh, aspects of our lives are contributing data into this sea of information, of big data. Uh, it's estimated, some people have estimated that the amount of data in the world, you could almost call that the amount of knowledge, but certainly the amount of data points is doubling every 12 hours. Um, and it's, it's in this sea of big data that AI uh, is rising, is growing stronger, uh, because uh, it, is, it is the tool that we're using now with high-speed computers uh, to handle this big data. The best computers can day, today can do a quintillion computations per second, which is a billion billion, um, so that the ability to handle this, this emerging uh, mass of big data uh, is, uh, is emerging, and with it, AI. Now, there are three different types of artificial intelligence. There's the narrow machine learning, uh, which we have in our lives from Siri and Alexa to other things that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, AI has been a part of our lives really since the 50s. Things like thermostats, uh, some basic technologies, obviously airplanes, uh, our cars are more and more uh, have artificial intelligence aspects. So it's already part of our lives and nothing to be afraid of. It's something that has positive positively contributed to our society. Um, but as we get into the more sophisticated types, uh, artificial general intelligence, 
uh, which is machine intelligence. We're kind of at entering that stage now uh, where, uh, where the machines are becoming as good uh, at reasoning as we are. And then finally, and the stage that, as I say, causes trepidation is machine consciousness, uh, intellect that is much smarter than the best human brains. Now, a lot of people are warning about this. Um, it's, uh, it's been a, a topic of, of fiction, the idea that somehow computers could emerge with their own agendas. Uh, the film Metropolis by Fritz Lang was an early example of this. We all remember HAL, the computer, IBM, uh, from 2001, A Space Odyssey, more recently, The Matrix, was based on this idea of, of an intelligent uh, AI neural network eventually taking over and following its own agenda. This, this period, this point at which this could happen is called the singularity. Um, and uh, there's a lot of speculation on when that may or may not occur. Uh, there are scientists and uh, entrepreneurs uh, who have been warning that we have to take this very seriously. Uh, Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk, uh, Bill Gates have all warned about this. And Ray Kurzweil, um, who is a, a contributor to this debate, uh, some years ago said he thought this would happen by about 2045. I mean, no one knows, um, but um, it, it could emerge in the not, not so distant future. It, I think it's important to realize that this is not the idea that it would already become conscious, but rather, and this is uh, the nature of complex systems, that uh, in a very complex AI, behaviors could emerge that taken as a whole are no longer correlate to the behavior of the individual components that were programmed in. In other words, at a certain point, we won't really know what it is doing. It's not that it's conscious, but that it's, its complexity has gotten to the point where uh, what it's doing doesn't follow from the way we programmed it. So that's the fear among some people. Um, a very early uh, person to look into this was the tragic uh, Alan Turing. Um, he's uh, left an a mark on this on this whole field, uh, the idea that computers eventually will be able to, as he put it, converse with each other, sharpen their wits. Uh, we have to expect him at some point to take control. He uh, came up with the concept of what's called the Turing test, where you, an evaluator, uh, tries to determine uh, in sort of behind a wall whether he's interacting with a human or a computer. It's called the Turing test, and this is actually something that is used uh, in the economy. Now, here's a, a one-day workshop on the Turing test for autonomous driving. Um, so this, this idea of, uh, of, of, of trying to estimate AI um, has been around really since 1950. Another recent film that got into this was, the, was Ex Machina, which uh, the plot has to do with a, basically the founder of Google uh, going to a remote, remote retreat and developing AI and then inviting one of his best programmers to see if uh, the AI can pass the Turing test. Um, and uh, the chilling moment comes when the, when the AI uh, realizes what's going on. What happens to me if I fail your test? What if I fail your Turing test? Uh, this is kind of interesting because Google right now is doing research on whether it might be possible for an algorithm to deprogram the kill switch that the human programmers would have. This is actually being actively studied. Uh, we're to that point in AI where um, this kind of an eventuality is, is being 
uh, taken seriously enough to study. Now, we've, we've come a long way from uh, the beginnings of computing at the end of World War II. I think it's very interesting to point out the role, very important role that Minnesota played um, in, this, in this early phase. Um, the Engineering Research Associates uh, was based primarily in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, it evolved out of World War II and the U.S. Navy elite code breakers who uh, were gathered by the U.S. government to try to break the Japanese uh, and German uh, security codes. Um, this had aspects of kind of early AI uh, activity. And at the end of the war, it was decided that these groups should be kept together. And it was a mixture of government and private. Um, they chose St. Paul, Minnesota as the primary location. And in 1946, top scientists uh, arrived from these, this government program to St. Paul and began top secret research for the National Security Agency, uh, leading really to early computing. Th this, the top secret nature of this was revealed in 1977 only. Um, now, there were many Minnesotans who, who joined this, the entire graduating class at the U in engineering in 1950 and 51, went on board with engineering research associates, people like Seymour Cray uh, was from that. Uh, uh, it grew to about 850 people. And uh, of course, computing back then was quite different. It, 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 it was uh, based on spiked uh, cards and such things. But this, this, was a, this, this put Minnesota right at the center of, 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 of computing at that time. And it led to many spin-offs. Of course, Cray Research, uh, the heart of the research uh, group became Control Data. And of course, Seagate eventually uh, spun off off of that. So this was a period of Minnesota history where uh, we really were at the center. And as I say, it was primarily a government program at its beginning. Uh, we were also almost very important uh, because of the Gopher Protocol, which was developed at the U uh, in the 80s. It was an early uh, version of the World Wide Web. Um, and it was designed for distributing, searching, retrieving documents, uh, strongly oriented toward university work. And for whatever reason, it was never fully developed into a larger system that might have, have gone global. Um, there are many people different as to why that never happened. And so as a, as a result, a, uh, a British uh, scientist, Tim Berners-Lee, as late as March 1989, uh, proposed uh, and invented the World Wide Web with all that we think of today, the URLs and the HTTPs and all these things. Uh, it's amazing how recent all of this is and uh, the fact that Minnesota was almost at the center again. So computing is developing very, very fast. And uh, Moore's Law has said that uh, the number of transistors and resistors on a chip doubles every 24 months, uh, which uh, means the speed of computing doubles at that fast. It's arguably slowing down at this point, but still the, the onrush of, the, of this technology is, uh, is striking. Now, it's possible to get too giddy about this. In fact, there's something uh, called the, uh, the, Gartner, the Gartner hype curve, which is uh, something that computer specialists talk about. They, when you have a technology trigger, everyone is gaga about it. Uh, you, you get up to a peak of inflated expectations, those fall away, there's a slope of enlightenment, and finally it levels out. And 
you know, AI itself probably is going through this phase. Uh, this is the Gartner hype, hype cycle for 2019 when uh, there was a lot of hype about self-driving cars coming to a new level, um, aspects of 3D printing, and a lot of that has turned to also 5G. And you can see there's a downward slope also on autonomous driving, uh, and then it goes back up again. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't allow ourselves, I guess, to be too, um, uh, too giddy or heady about this because obviously uh, it doesn't go in a straight line. But a development in this past decade uh, really is a breakthrough and is speeding things up. And I, I want to describe it in some detail right now before we go on to, to big data. Um, IBM Watson was kind of the state of the art in computing uh, in, in this early uh, 21st century. It was kind of traditional computing based on programming uh, the, uh, the IBM computer Watson to a specific task. And so uh, it all was a matter of the algorithms trying to make sure that it was, uh, it, it was prepared then to, to beat somewhat at chess or whatever the goal was. Well, in 2010, a, a group of British uh, young academics at the uh, University College in London founded an organization called DeepMind, um, which has really changed the game now. This is uh, one of the three founders, Demis Hassabis. It's interesting that the three founders were all immigrants uh, into Britain. Hassabis was Greek, Singaporean, uh, Mustafa Suleiman, Syrian, Syrian, uh, in, in Britain, and uh, Shane Legg is from New Zealand. But they, they came up with a, a concept of, uh, of self-learning AI. Um, and the idea was not just to program it to a task, but to program it in a way that it would learn through experiences by looking at pixels or whatever, it, 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 would, it would compute this uh, and learn on its own, which is a, a real game changer. And it started, they, they decided to train this computer with, a, with, a, with online computer games. So they started with Atari games from the 1970s and uh, DeepMind quickly mastered that. They then went on to uh, Doom games from the 1990s, just leaving it on its own. It played endless times, playing, playing, playing until it fully dominated. And it's currently working on uh, StarCraft II which is a much more sophisticated uh, computer game, uh, takes a lot of intuition and such. And so uh, this, is, uh, this is how this thing has, has emerged. In 2014, DeepMind was acquired by Google. And it is the main AI for Google now. Whenever you go on to Google uh, and, and try to look something up, you're interacting with DeepMind. And in fact, you're making DeepMind smarter with all these uh, millions, as I say, it's, it's, it's evolving in a sea of big data that we are producing. Uh, a really striking breakthrough for, uh, for DeepMind was when it first beat the world champion in Go, uh, which is all a very complicated game, more complex in some ways than chess because it's very intuitive. Um, AlphaGo, which was a, uh, a DeepMind uh, app, uh, beat the world champion finally uh, in in uh, in 2016, and then a year or two later, AlphaGo Zero was put up against AlphaGo, another DeepMind system. And as you can see, within 36 hours, AlphaGo Zero mastered the game 
uh, within 72 hours, it was beating AlphaGo Zero 100, 100 times to zero. Uh, AlphaGo Zero is named AlphaGo Zero because there's zero human input uh, into the learning that went on to, uh, to produce AlphaGo Zero. So this, um, this idea now of self-learning AI, as I say, it's only really emerged in the past five, 10 years, um, and it is speeding up the equation. Uh, not to get too wonky about it, but it's based on convolutional neural networks. Um, basically, it's almost like human evolution, uh, mutation, selection, recombination. So layer one is the, is, is it studies a, a, a system, uh, is, is, and then it's, it senses a, a mutation taking place into layer two, and then it selects through experience the optimal recombination or the classifier. So it has kind of an eerie parallelism with, with evolution itself um, as, this, as this learning uh, deepens. So all this big data is out there, and it is quite beneficial in so many different areas. Healthcare uh, will be transformed by this. Finance is already, uh, Wall Street works on the basis of, of algorithms and, and fast trading. Uh, education, we're seeing with a lockdown now with COVID, how uh, computers and, our, and, and basically AI will be impacting education, retail, media, all these things are, uh, are benefiting from, from computerization, big data, and AI. But um, as the author of our Great Decisions topic this time, and there she is, this is Susan, um, uh, Susan Ariel Aronson, who is at George Washington University, and she wrote a very good article about this, looking at what all this means now for privacy, for data protection. Um, you know, she points out that in China, uh, government, the government is driving AI to some extent, working with the, with the, the computer corporations there, the, uh, the tech corporations. In the U.S., it's more sort of market and national security driven. But that uh, there are varying approaches now to how to handle this data, and especially how to handle uh, individual privacy and freedom. Um, it obviously has tremendous implications for governance uh, and for uh, for surveilling uh, the population through these through these uh, tools, and of course she uh, points out that America's approach to this has been quite uneven so far. Uh, we don't really have any national legislation on this. We uh, we've signed on to some principles with the OECD, but by and large, uh, and a couple of bilateral agreements have included some of this, uh, looking at, at data aspects. But uh, we are not really uh, on top of this yet. And she firmly believes and says in her article that, that AI should be considered a public good, that there should be a commons, that no country alone can govern AI, and that, that countries have to move toward some kind of AI protocols uh, to keep this all uh, in line and uh, on a steady course. Uh, she notes that about 30 countries right now have AI plans. So the aspects that people would look at in trying to develop an approach to data and to the implications of, of big data uh, revolve around some of these concepts. They, they vary a little bit depending on who's analyzing, but obviously the volume of the data, uh, the velocity, the streaming, uh, how much of it is actually moving, the variety, and then the veracity, of course, is important. And all that has to do with 
uh, with big data. But for society, there are, there are issues like visibility. Um, in other words, should private data be visible? Should one's own data that's been collected be visible to the person uh, that owns, that created that data? And of course, values. What, how, what kind of a value uh, context do we see all this in? Now, one of the examples that really brought home this problem was the, uh, the egregious Facebook scandal in 2014 and then in, uh, during our last election. This uh, chart sets it out. In 2014, Facebook uh, set up a quiz that it had developed and invited users to log on and find out their own personality type. Um, now, of course, the app was collecting, I mean, this is what AI and it uh, does, it, it collects this stuff, big data. It collected the data of those taking the quiz, about 300,000 people, but it also gathered information of people that they were in contact with at, in Facebook, which brought the total data reservoir to 87 million people um, from this one quiz that Facebook had. had. And then they monetized it, they, they, they tried to profit from it by selling it to private corporations, including to Cambridge Analytica, which used it then to profile voters in the US election. Now this, this got into so many elements of society and individual privacy that it, it made a mark. Um, and I think it, it, it had speeded up some of the considerations now of, of, of how to handle big data and privacy. Now the, the norm setter, the uh, the, the furthest ahead in developing uh, norms for big data and for AI would be the European Union. Uh, and the 25th of May, they adopted the General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, this is becoming the standard for many countries and even states within the United States for sort of basic um, principles of, of AI governance and big data governance. Uh, here you can see um, some of the aspects of this. A very important part of the, of the uh, general data protection regulation in the European Union uh, is the right to be forgotten. Uh, in other words, uh, you're, you have a, a strong right not to be monitored if you don't want to be, not to have your uh, information collected if, collect if you don't want it to be. Now, also the uh, applicability worldwide, uh, as long as the organization in any way stores data of US, EU citizens, it is, uh, uh, it is under this law. So somebody in California, uh, or somebody in Europe rather, who buys something uh, from Amazon, for example, or um, through uh, Facebook or whatever, would be under this law, as long as they're an EU citizen. So you can see how this has, has slowly developed now. And um, here's kind of a look at how the uh, this is being handled around the world um, as, uh, as our author from Great Decisions pointed out, about 30 countries have started to adopt this. And you can see Canada has updated its law to align with the European protocol. Uh, California, which is the state in the UN, US that has gone the furthest here, um, is also uh, basing it on, to a large extent, on the European protocol. Many US states are looking at what California is doing now for their own legislation. Uh, only three states have actually adopted uh, privacy legislation the way California has, but about 12 others are considering it. 
Uh, the California law went into effect uh, at the beginning of this year. Brazil is another country now that is, is, has gone quite far in this. Once again, looking to the uh, General Data Protection Act, um, its uh, protocol will become effective in August, although because of COVID, it's been uh, delayed now into 2021. So, um, but even within this, there are important variations. Um, if you look, for example, on the Cal at the California law compared to the European standard, the California law um, it focuses mainly on buying and selling of personal data uh, in actual business transactions. So it doesn't go too much further in, in, in trying to regulate. Um, and it only requires uh, uh, a, a company to set up a simple opt-out uh, uh, possibility for consumers. Now we've all seen already that oftentimes it's, a, it's pages of, of, of data about, about what they're gonna do with your information and at the end they ask you to accept or not accept. Um, and it's very hard to know obviously what to do and most people just say accept. Well, the European protocol takes a broader approach. Um, it encompasses all processing of personal data, not just business transactions, not just buying and selling. And it's much more strict. Uh, it's not just a matter of opting out. Um, it requires specific, informed, unambiguous, and freely given consent by the consumer, uh, which is obviously open to broad legal interpretation and really puts the onus on companies and organizations to be sure that they have fully given the consumer the chance to quote unquote um, opt out. So we're, we're, we're far from seeing a global standard emerge, obviously, um, but uh, th there is, there is uh, progress being made and our companies are already uh, de facto beginning to, uh, our global corporations especially, to comply with the European uh, Consumer Privacy Act or, uh, or Data Act, uh, protect, Data Protection Regulation. So it's having an effect beyond the borders. And the US government is, is looking at this, wondering if uh, at some point they should try to, to, to say, look, you don't have purview like this over our corporations. Um, so there's a little bit of tension built into this right now. Um, and within the United States, as I say, California has had an impact because it's a large state. And so any US company working within the US has got to take the California law into account and adapt even if other states haven't adopted as yet. So, um, so now Minnesota is, uh, is also you know, obviously looking at this. We don't have a overarching act on privacy, but we do have two very important acts. We have the Minnesota Government Data Protection Act from 1974, which controls how government data are collected um, how they're stored, used, and how they're released. Um, the public has a right uh, to this government data if it's their own, um, and also to privacy of the data. So this is this law's been around for a while, and um, and so uh, you know we'll see how this whether we evolve now in the direction of California of having a Minnesota statute more more directly. We also have. Uh, uh, the Minnesota Health Records Act, which is the strictest and most comprehensive in the whole United States. Um, it, it regulates our 
the data on our personal health, uh, the right of access to data, and privacy protection. Um, as I say, it's the strongest, and it's much stronger than the national regulation on this, which is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, which is from 1996 under Bill Clinton. Now, HIPAA is fairly, fairly weak. Uh, it doesn't really have a consent rule. Um, under Minnesota, Minnesota law, the, uh, the individual must give their consent um, for, for information to be shared. Uh, but under HIPAA, uh, business associations can have access to your data if a doctor, hospital, or insurer agrees doesn't require your agreement. It can be your doctor and your hospital or an insurer that you're with. So, um, and there is there's lobbying going on in the Minnesota legislature uh, to try to weaken the Minnesota Health Records Act and make it correspond more to HIPAA, which of course is the in, in the interest potentially of corporations uh, looking to, to buy and sell and, and use data but not necessarily uh, the citizen. So this is an issue that's, that's, that's pretty important right here. Uh, so that's the status. Um, Kristen Hillebrand, Gillibrand, a Democrat of New York in February, uh, proposed the creation of a national data protection agency. So we'll see where that goes. Um, at least now there's a concrete proposal that's come up to the Congress on this and we'll see whether it actually goes anywhere. Now the problem, with data uh, is nowhere near being solved with, with all these efforts. Because uh, as this technology advances, uh, there's something called web scraping, which has, um, which has really emerged now. Uh, there are apps, uh, you can buy them, uh, Chrome, Google Chrome has them, that allows you or a company to scrape uh, tremendous amounts of information off the internet, off Facebook, anywhere that it's not protected and collate this uh, and sell it to other parties. Um, now, now th this is obviously um, can be misused. Uh, we all know about the, the credit scores that we have. Um, you know, the Fair, Fair Credit Reporting Act uh, of around 2000 for the first time guaranteed access to, to one's credit score. Um, the credit score is, and so that data is protected, but it's only a very limited amount of information that goes into your credit score. There's much more information out there. And that is being turned by entrepreneurial private sector companies into all kinds of scores that we have, that we don't know that we have. Um, there's even a book, uh, by uh, Pam Dixon, who is the executive director of the World Privacy, Privacy Forum, called The Scoring of America. And she goes into detail of how, just how much information is being collected on us, how many scores are being sold and traded among corporations and uh, other companies um, that we have no idea of. Um, in her book, she points out that, uh, that anything we do with our credit cards or that can be or online is collated. So for example, if you use your credit card to buy a latte at Starbucks, that can go into a score of uh, less than healthy eating habits, right? Why are you getting a, a fattening latte? Um, whereas if you go into the gym and using your credit card, uh, that shows something else. So 
she says that she personally now, if she's ever doing something like buying a latte or something that could be negative, she uses cash. If she ever is doing something that might reflect positively on one of her many, many scores out there, she uses her credit card. Um, and so, as I say, there's tremendous detail in this book about how far uh, uh, this is going in our society. Um, and it's a big industry, actually. Now, one of the most sort of telling uh, examples of this is Clearview AI. Now, uh, it was started just a few years ago, and they are using very sophisticated scraping technologies to really just uh, vacuum up all information they can find on the web. Uh, for example, they try to find any image of a person, an identifiable person, whether from um, school websites, university websites, business websites that are not protected, um, individual Facebook uh, accounts. They collate masses of this, this information. Then they put it through facial recognition and sell it. So they, um, they allow organizations to match pictures of people's faces to a database containing more than 3 billion images that this company has already taken from social media platforms and other websites. As I say, this big data is just a sea out there. Now, Clearview AI has expanded to 26 countries. It works extensively with law enforcement, so up to 600 uh, police departments and law enforcement agencies in the US are already using Clearview facial recognition uh, technology. Now, unlike China, which we'll discuss in a minute, this is all happening in our private sector here. Um, and it is, uh, it's legal. Now the, the Europeans, the European Data Protection Board, Data Protection Board, just on June 11th this year, warned Clearview that its technology is most likely to be illegal in the EU. Um, and Google, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook um, have sent cease and desist orders to, to, to uh, Clearview for scraping its images. Um, Clearview is defending itself on the basis of First Amendment's rights, First Amendment rights, but uh, th this is emerging as a really uh, uh, unregulated, with, with all the upset about uh, facial recognition and how China is using that, uh, this is something that's happening right in our own backyard. So um, now the, uh, uh, the, the US government, of course, is not that far behind. Um, this is the NSA data center, which was opened in 2013 in Utah. It's called the Bumble Hive. It's huge, it can process obviously a lot of data. Um, it's unclear still how much of this private data is being sprayed by the NSA. If Clearview can do it, why can't the NSA? It's, it's uh, obviously not uh, fully uh, visible. It's interesting that according to the uh, Utah Commission of Public Safety, in, from 2016, this facility has been hacked 300 million times per day. This is obviously every actor and entity in the world and nations is trying to hack their way into this darn facility. So uh, now China, of course, we, we know much about what they're, they're doing. They're using facial recognition. They're very advanced in that. Um, their uh, social credit system, um, based on all kinds of uh, monitoring, uh, you see how uh, all this is in, in, computed into your uh, social credit score. 
but once again, the government is doing this. Uh, it, it's, it's helped them in, in trying to uh, handle the, the COVID crisis with, uh, uh, with uh, tracking and tracing. You have a green uh, screen on your app if you're able to do things, if you're health, healthy. Um, now, the U.S. is trying to push, of course, China back out of this field. We are successfully pushing bands to get back against Huawei, against ByteDance, which has TikTok. The U.S. government believes that Huawei will gather our big data. TikTok will gather the data of American preteens, teens, and adolescents. Uh, the U.S. military already can't use uh, TikTok. Uh, it may be banned soon, to the chagrin of many uh, small children and teenagers in, in the U.S. It's already been banned in India just this month um, due to the border tensions with China. So, but in addition to pushing back, and I'm going to finish up here now, uh, we are developing new legislation to try to match China in its approach to computing AI and big data. So just now in May, a new piece of legislation has, has been tabled. It's bipartisan. The Endless Frontier Act. And it's going to address national party uh, policy, basically a national security policy, if you will, the national industrial policy. It's going to rename the uh, National Science Foundation to the National Science and Technology Foundation, uh, $100 billion to reinvigorate American leadership and government role uh, in tech. It's going to designate 10 regional tech hubs around the country. Hopefully, Minneapolis will be one who will get money and try to develop hubs. Now, in conclusion, uh, so this is the, now the economist had an article just a week or two ago about how the, the Gartner curve is, is settling in with AI. It's not as easy to implement as many businesses thought. So, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's not going as fast in, in the business world as we thought, but obviously this is a, we'll pick up again. I'll conclude just by saying it's, you know, as the species, here we are in the Anthropocene. We've decided this is 1950, uh, since all that was going on here in, in St. Paul. We're in a new era, the Anthropocene, where we're, uh, we're directing the planet, we're influencing the planet, and even more evolutionary, evolutionarily, there are now scientists talking about how we're into a new age, having gone uh, through evolution of cells. We're now entering the biodigital fusion, uh, all kinds of very, very heady uh, uh, thought about where this is going. And I just find it so ironic that as we think about AI, it's, it's a primitive virus from the earliest stages of uh, evolution that is threatening humanity now. And of course, AI is helping us to conquer this. Um, but still, it's a great irony that we've got our, our, our eyes to the skies, and yet we're still living on this planet. So I'll stop there. Thanks very much. I went a little over, but uh, looking forward to your questions. Thank you, Tom, and thank you for going into that great big giant picture. We've got some great questions, and I want to turn those over to Molly Hayes-Berry, who is our uh, special guest tonight uh, handling the question. She works at the intersection of international and Minnesota policy, and I'm really thrilled you talked about where those fit together uh, as a special advisor on global affairs at my alma mater, the Humphrey School but also she has a long history in our foreign service all over the planet. I won't go into all of it, but we're so thrilled, Molly, that you could be with us again tonight. And I turn it over to you and the questions are yours. Thank you, Mark, so much for having me. It's always hey, great Molly. to be here with you all, even digitally. Um, Tom, 
This is kind of an overarching question um, that can have relevance for a few or really maybe all the different kind of sub partitions of data and artificial intelligence, which is what are the underlying values that are guiding research and development when it comes to artificial intelligence and data collection? Is there any sort of uh, consensus among scientists about which values get um, prioritized? Um, kind of how, how, who, who is thinking about that and where um, are, have people gained traction in thinking about that? Yeah, it's, it's a real mix, um, uh, both within the country and, and globally. Uh, you know, the motivations for this, obviously, uh, there's just the pure science. I think there's a fascination uh, as, you know, it's, it's a kind of a Pandora's box situation where uh, once a scientific breakthrough it happens, it, there, there's a tendency to want to take it all the way, just, just out of curiosity, out of this, the scientific uh, impulse. And so, you know, a lot of this is just being done um, science as science, and maybe without a lot of thought about where it will lead. You know, with, with nuclear weapons, it was only a few of the participants in the Manhattan Project that really began to sound uh, Oppenheimer and others, the, the values question. But the motivations are different. For example, um, over in China, it's obviously control. I mean, the, the, the government is highly invested in this because it sees AI and um, facial recognition as, as creating a new form of governance which will allow the, the, the planned economy to be perfected, will allow the Communist Party to stay in the saddle. And so it's working with corporations there, which are uh, deflecting their bottom line in many cases to this larger government effort. So there's a very strong um, motivation there. As I was pointing out with the example of Clearview, our, our companies are developing this for profit. And, um, and the profit motive is very strong here. And, and there's a lot of money to be made. Um, by um, dominating AI and by having access to big data. That's the big selling point is your, your company can move ahead if you have better AI and better big data. Um, so uh, these are really kind of taking the, taking the lead, I think, in the development here. Now, in some aspects, for example, in, 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 in gene editing and things like that, there have been values posed right away uh, in certain areas where these technologies are being used, for example, in genetic editing. There's a clear uh, moral dilemma here. Do we want to create artificial humans? Um, you know, do, do we do we want? You know, China did that and got heavily criticized. So there are certain subsectors where um, where this is is being raised. But across the board, I think that this is there's a lot of momentum behind this and a feeling. Um, it's like when Mark Zuckerberg talks about Facebook and how this is going to be a sa salvation for humanity. This is a free information. This is, uh, you know, wh why are you asking me about the values of Facebook? I think it's the same thing for a lot of techies uh, in this field. Um, and it's going to be up to society and, and groups um, focusing on privacy and other values to weigh in and hopefully weigh in effectively on this. Yeah, one of our participants put my question much more succinctly. Uh, Siri Anderson said, why isn't there a Hippocratic oath for programmers? A well, uh, no, that would, yeah, yes. so I thought, yeah. Very well put, yes. Yeah. Um, well, you know, okay. there, is a, there's, there is a Hippocratic Oath for computers that, uh, that was developed um, in the early 50s. So three, three laws, I think it's three laws that, that computers must always follow. And one of them is do, do, do not harm your, your programmer, basically. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Um, okay, so we have a ton of questions here. Um, and I'm, I'm actually going to start with the first question here that we received, which kind of goes back to the, the local piece. Um, so this is a question from Srinath Panchagnala. Um, mm -hmm. And she asks, um, are, are, is the data of Minnesotans uh, in terms of genetic and genomic data, is that protected in the same way as other types of health data? Or is that subject to different regulations? I'm, no, that's, I'm not a, a specialist. I know that genomic data theoretically would come um, under the Health Protection Act, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. That is obviously very sensitive and very important data. Um, uh, uh, and it would be of great interest to the private sector and to health insurers and that sort of thing. Um, I think it's one of the areas where there really should be robust national legislation. I think, I think in fact, Kristen Gillibrand, in proposing this national bill, mentioned specifically uh, genomic data uh, as an example of something that has to be regulated. Um, because right now, my understanding is if you, if you uh, engage with uh, you know, a genetic company, the one, two, three, and me, or whatever, uh, on a private basis, that's public information. That is in the public domain. And so a lot of gen genetic information is already out there. And there's no Minnesota law or federal law um, that protects that right now. So in a way, that's kind of a caveat, a caveat to people doing these, using the private sector for genetic uh, testing, um, that you're, you're giving up that data that can be used in, in ways you will never know about and going to scores that you'll never have access to. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk about, this is another question that gets at the intersection of, of you know, local here in Minnesota and then just more broadly around the world. Um, so looking at the ongoing protests following the murder of George Floyd, looking at the ongoing protests in Hong Kong, um, other parts of the world, um, what sorts of tools are being brought to bear um, in terms of uh, surveillance on protesters? What, what is kind of at the leading edge of that technology? Um, and then a question from Matthew Livers, which is, uh, is facial recognition going to be valuable in, in that sort of situation uh, or, you know, kind of in general in the, pan in the pandemic? Um, or, uh, is the use of masks something that is impeding us uh, global surveillance? Yes. Um, are retinal scans taking place was another question. Yep. Um, all those things are, are available and taking place. Um, so as I mentioned, just Clearview alone uh, has contracts with 600 law enforcement organizations apparently. So I don't know the details and I don't even know if they're public about uh, what, what what Minnesota does with the police. I know drones are used. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's a powerful tool for law enforcement to have facial recognition. I mean, if you can, um, if you can use Clearview software of 3 billion uh, data points to, to take the, the, the image of somebody that, that was photographed robbing a, robbing a bank or robbing a store and run it against this data, bingo which is exactly what the Chinese are doing. Except the difference is the Chinese are doing it on a state basis. In this case, it looks like it's between a private company and I assume the state 
standing behind uh, the Minnesota Police Department. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this, this is all being used. And, and um, it's interesting that in Asia, you, you know, if there's a, a kind of a defining characteristic of who's doing well or not doing well uh, in, in the pandemic among countries, it's, it's not so much democracies versus autocracies. It's, it's it, countries that have social capital, that have trust built in, trust both from citizen to citizen and citizen to state as opposed to those that, that lack that trust, that lack that social capital. Um, and so in Asia, you've seen you know, cell phone apps uh, used and, the, and the, the populations accept that because they trust the government is using it even though they're being intrusive for a good purpose. In Germany, uh, there was a big reaction and in Scandinavia too, against using cell phone apps uh, to do tracking and tracing. We aren't really far enough along ourselves to have the issue come up too much, I think, because um, our tracking and tracing lags way behind. Um, so um, it, it's a wide range of approaches to, to, to how to use this technology, but it, it is being used um, and it's, it's something that'll have to be taken up in whatever legislation eventually comes along. Uh, we only have space for one more question, unfortunately. We talk about yep. this all day. Um, so where, who, who would you recommend uh, you know, for those of us who are participating in this call and are interested in these topics, who would you point to as really being at the leading edge of leading these conversations about, uh, you know, the potential weaponization of artificial intelligence um, around uh, surveillance and data protection, um, machine learning? Like, who, who, what are your, what are your top sources that you would recommend to us? Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's if you, if you go to Barnes and Noble, work on it. Yeah. yeah, if you go to Barnes and Noble, there's just an endless array of books. Um, a lot of them getting into AI itself, maybe less into all the value implications. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, the, the person I mentioned, Pam Dixon, uh, I think on the issue of kind of day to day, what we face um, in, in terms of, of these technologies being used already now, um, she's a very good source. Uh, uh, I think online, you can, you can see her speaking to a group, uh, one of the great decisions groups around the country. Uh, she actually, I know, did one for one of the groups. Uh, so if you Google Pam Dixon and great decisions, you might find a, a speech by her even. And her book, which came out a few years ago, but I think has been updated, is called The Scoring of America. Um, and, so, and so those are all good, all, all good sources. Just in terms of, of, of AI itself, uh, it's, there are so many, so many books right now, I'm having a hard time thinking of, of one to single out. Um, uh, as I say, it's, it's a, and of course, a lot of it having to do with the dystopian possibilities of, 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 of AI, of, of how far this can go. There's a big debate uh, among experts about whether the singularity really is anywhere near, and in fact, whether it ever really will appear. Um, so, as I say, there's a lot of a lot of disagreement even among experts about that. So, um, and, but in, ter in terms of kind of our daily lives, I think Pam Dixon is a good place to start. Thank you again to Tom and to Molly and to all of our friends, our members at Global Minnesota, and everyone watching around the planet. See you again at the next Global Conversation. Good night now. Thanks, Mark. Bye, everyone.